storm's coming and it's coming fast. Just can't sit back and watch this. Tornado's heading towards the airport. We need to destroy it before it gets to them. Watch out! You can't just wait here and wait for sharks to rain down on us. Welcome to Glop Culture, G-L-O-P, the Ricochet podcast featuring Jonah Goldberg in Washington, D.C. Hi, Jonah. Hello. Rob Long. Uh, pretty well. You're going to go with that, huh, Jonah? That's I'm, I'm gonna... totally, I am unbelievably <laughs> sleep deprived. I am like, I am, I am like on a vision quest. I'm going to see a naked Indian any second now. I am like totally, <laughs> totally sleep deprived. So be pre- forewarned. Okay, and the other the other voice you hear is Rob Long in Los Angeles, California. Hi, Rob. Hi, Jonah. <laughs> Hi, John. I, I don't have I don't have a funny hello. I just that's all I got. And for me, I'll just say a happy Sharknado Day. Uh, John Podhoritz here in New York City. Of course, it is uh, as we speak the morning after the. Um, Twitter phenomenon known as the simultaneous tweeting of the unbelievable sci-fi uh, made-for-TV movie called Sharknado that uh, dominated Twitter last night, um, according to uh, a uh, social media expert named Patrick Ruffini. Uh, there were 5,000 tweets a minute uh, during Sharknado. Um, and each tweeter was tweeting an average of twice a minute uh, about this rather spectacular piece of pop culture detritus. Um, and uh, I understand um, that uh, this is not all amusement and fun and hijinks for uh, those of us here on the Glob Culture no. podcast. No. Because uh, Rob Long is, uh, is the executive producer of the uh, very funny uh, sitcom Sullivan and Sons. On um, TBS, uh, yeah, thank, which, thank which, you for which searching was, for that in your memory. Yes, TBS <laughs> on yes, another TBS, ca- yeah, basic cable. Yes, basic cable, and it was uh, on opposite Sharknado. Uh, Rob, how have you recovered from from well, this onslaught? Look, here's the thing. Like, first of all, um, I always I have this problem with the, with, with with my uh, my team. Uh, and my my partners uh, on on the uh, on on Sullivan Son because we we um, we look at the tweets and we say look at all the tweets we you know we're trending or, or look at all the tweets we've got and, and people love our show because it's the tweets uh, the tweets are meaningless <laughs> uh, and and I say that as somebody I love Twitter I I, I, I like the company I know uh, I'm I'm very good friends with people who who are, who who run Twitter um, I I I've been a fan of Twitter forever. But it's not a very good way to know whether what you're doing is meaningful or is actually moving, um, because you just the, the scale is just too huge. So Twitter can be a uh, Twitter can be a very good indication, I think, for us uh, on our show of whether uh, we are um, we're making an impact on our on our viewers already. But I don't know if we're getting any viewers from Twitter. So you know, when I, we we I follow Twitter stream on Thursday nights. Um, 
at uh, seven at seven p.m. If we're still in the office, I'll put it up on the screen in the office and, and project it up while we're proofing the next the next day script, and just watch it and watch people uh, uh, who who know our hashtag, um, and watch them re- repeat jokes. And then it's kind of funny to see them talk about the, the, the things that are said. And I'll do it again at 10 p.m. if I'm around. Um, but that's about it. So, but, but the problem with it is that, okay, now, just to be personal here, we have 10 episodes in the summer. The first episode was Game 4. Uh, we premiered uh, against Game 4 of the NBA uh, championship. The second episode was against Game 7 of the NBA championship, one of the highest rated basketball games of all time. The third episode uh, was... Um, actually, we did really, really well. Uh, the fourth episode was uh, July 4th, so we ran a rerun because nobody's watched even July 4th. This is our fifth episode last night, and we actually started – we had a guest star. It was a good friend of ours and a wonderful guy, Billy Gardell, who's the star of Mike and Molly. And uh, he played a very, very funny role. He played this a mean, basically a mean kids hockey coach, an old friend of the, of the guys in the bar. And, uh, and if you've never – if you've always wanted to see uh, – um, a big network comedy TV star scream at a bunch of little boys uh, when they miss a, a, a hockey shot. Uh, listen up, listen up, boys. Listen up to me. Listen up. I want you to die, all of you. Uh, uh, you haven't lived. <laughs> he, he, it was very funny. So if it's ever rerun, if you missed, if you're watching Sharknado, you you tune in. Anyway, uh, that's my Wait. rant. If if you're watching Sharknado, <laughs> yeah, well, we don't know. <laughs> I, I I predict that the numbers for Sharknado are are not nearly at the size that you expect them to. It's in the middle of the summer, as we say, hut levels are low. Households using television levels are very very low. The weirdest thing I saw last night was a tweet from Mia Farrow. She took a selfie, meaning a, a picture of herself. Mia Farrow and Philip Roth. It was a tweet of them both of them, and and it said, "We're watching Sharknado." Yes, it did say that, and I believe that that really does mean that the world has come to an end. Uh, 52 yeah. years ago, Philip Roth wrote an essay in the magazine I edit, Commentary Magazine, called Writing American Fiction, in which he posited the theory that it was impossible to write American fiction any longer um, because reality had gotten too strange. And he told a story about a, uh, Chicago, a murder in Chicago where eventually – the parents of the murderer and the parents of the victim had a press conference together at which they both they cried on each other's shoulders. And he said, you couldn't make this up. And he said, you couldn't make up uh, McCarthy or G. David Shine, one of his lawyers, or Roy Cohn. And you couldn't make any of this up. So now it's 52 years later and Philip Roth, arguably the most distinguished living American writer, is dating Woody Allen's ex-girlfriend and watching Sharknado. What would Philip Roth in 1961 <laughs> have to say about Philip Roth in 2013? You can't invent. You can't, you can't invent facts like this. The yeah. very fact that Mia Farrow would go from Woody Allen, um, arguably the uh, most uh, blatant representation of uh, refutation of the idea that Jewish men make good husbands, to Philip Roth, the second refutation of the argument that Jewish men make good husbands. <laughs> is itself beyond parody. Yeah, but I, I want to push back a little on this. I mean, I, I understand Philip Roth does a very highbrow kind of fiction, and it's supposed to be believable, part of the actual human drama, and blah, 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 blah. I'm sorry, the Sharknado proves 
that you can still write things more unbelievable than real life. <laughs> and he was listen, wrong. Listen, <laughs> I find I find true. I find Sharknado less believable than the idea that Mia Farrow and and Philip Roth watched Sharknado. <laughs> right, that's true. Because you know what? Exactly if you're in the city in the summer and you're you know I don't know I'm trying to think about their lives for a minute. Um, you know what do you do? You it's hot. You're inside. You have the AC turned on. You're gonna watch TV. You, and you're well, gonna. But normally you would watch the least objectionable programming possible, and Sharknado is not it. Yes, listen. <laughs> yeah, my, but it, it's so bad parents, that you do. Look, the my thing is that they're old. Do, my parents do nothing but watch. They watch TV from the moment they got up in the morning to the moment they go to bed at night. And you know what they watch? They watch Inspector McGillicuddy on Netflix. You know, some gritty detective in right. – Belfast, who is investigating a serial killing or a French serial killer show or a Danish serial killer show or the American versions of the French, Danish, British and Lapland and Icelandic killer uh, serial killer shows. They're not watching Sharknado. They're, they're good New York Jewish intellectuals and they did not watch. I will tell you this. They didn't hear of Sharknado. They didn't know about Sharknado. The interesting thing about Sharknado is that nobody knew about Sharknado until the day before Sharknado premiered when suddenly I think a single article or note about it in the Washington Post created this uh, Sharknado of interest in this uh, bizarre sci-fi movie which is, you know, which is just one in a in a long line of crazy self-parodic movies about sharks that's that yeah. one one came on right after sharknado last night about a two-headed shark uh that if was you, you know it, chasing people on a beach with so, carmen electra yeah. with carmen electra now a two-headed shark enough. is not very scary because if you make it you know, bad enough they'll watch if you make it bad enough look, I, I look i think you could honestly say philip roth and mia farrow are old people old people watch a lot of tv like that and if you make it bad enough and, and good bad enough or fun bad enough, they'll watch. Now, here's the other thing. See, I rarely, with the exception of Sullivan and Son on you. <laughs> Thursday TBS. nights yeah. on TBS. Yes, thank you. I almost never watch commercial television anymore or watch anything with commercials. So I was watching Sharknado last night because I was participating in the Twitter jamboree. And my, my lord – there is some weird food being produced by fast food restaurants in America yeah. today. Every commercial break, there is some, you know, four-level bacon cheeseburger <laughs> with a tomato and, and maple syrup for breakfast sandwich from Dunkin' Donuts or something green-colored that you can get from Dunkin' Donuts on the breakfast menu or something or other. And I thought, this is really who is making this food? Who wants to eat this food? There is this picture of this cheeseburger with the bacon that I think you get at Carl's Jr. And it was larger than a sandwich that you used to get from Carnegie Deli. Carnegie Deli being this deli in New York that was right. famous because you'd order a corned beef sandwich and it was literally seven inches tall. Like you couldn't get your mouth around it and everyone would say oh ho, look at the sandwich and then you would actually have to figure out how to eat the thing and it was always a disaster so this carl's jr cheeseburger is the size uh, clearly is the size of a of a Carnegie deli sandwich who's eating it how did they get it into their mouths 
what is going on in America today? Well, I, I think mean, Jonah, this isn't just an obesity epidemic. This is like some kind of a mutant food epidemic. People, food is itself <laughs> mutating before our eyes. You need to drive around the country a little bit more. Yeah. You you go into these places, you'll 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 find people. I didn't see the Carl's Jr. one with the giant burger. I'm now intrigued. <laughs> In part because you know the owner of Carl's Jr. I believe is a good right winger. Yes, well, he is. He, well, yes, well, he, yes, yes, he is. Because well, he, he needs, he needs, uh, he wants good private insurance for his customers. His. Well, no, that, that is not necessarily true. The the the, okay. the the founder of Carl's Jr., Carl Karcher, was a very conservative guy of Orange County, friend of the Reagans. Um, and uh, he and his wife and his wife died, and then weirdly he started going out. Um, he's like eighty or something with Maud Chasen when Dave Chasen died. Uh, so Carl Karcher and Maud Chasen, the guys who own Chasen's, the famous restaurant here, they started going out. Uh, and I <laughs> prepare prepare yourself. I, I drop a name. I actually heard that story from Nancy Reagan. <laughs> nice. I, well, I once had I once had lunch with Nancy Reagan, and, uh, well, and she was talking about Chasen's, but. Uh, but I understand. Then, I understand. Nancy Reagan once had a bite of a hamburger. Oh yeah, once, she I, once. Are you once, kidding me? Yeah, she, she, Nancy Reagan's a real or can be a real a real dame. Um, <laughs> but 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 Carl's Jr., which also owns Hardee's, they invented the thing, the theory, and I think this is near when when I think when Carl Karcher was sort of either either had already died or he was sort of failing and turned over the company to his lawyer who who loved it and and kind of re- resurrected it. Um, uh, he they, they invented the the phrase meat as a condiment, so it was more like you get a burger and you also get on the burger uh, ham or barbecue ah. stuff. Or, uh, you get extra extra meat on the burger, and meat is also a condiment. And um, and he was the one. This guy was the one. The lawyer was the one who would uh, when he took over the company and was failing everywhere. He, he actually went on a road trip with jo- Jonah and and watched and looked at all the stores they had. And realized they were kind of dirty and they needed to be cleaned up, and that was important. And then he went and um, ate at Burger, ate at the at the stores, and all of the focus group data and all of the research said that people were eating lighter, and they wanted salads, and they were calorie conscious, and they lies, all that stuff. And but he'd watch them eat and order, and they just order ten of everything. You know, like, <laughs> and they never order the salads. And Carl's Jr. used to have salad bars, and every day he'd just see people throw the lettuce out. <laughs> and he said, "Well, what if we went the other direction?" And that's what Carl's Jr. did, and he he saved the company. It was like it was bigger. He put onion rings and French fries in the burger, and <laughs> more stuff. And and it, it's, it's it's and I'll tell you, if, if you're, I mean, I will not eat a hamburger from McDonald's, but if if I'm hungry and there's no In-N-Out burger nearby. Um, uh, bacon western, a double bacon western cheeseburger from Carl's Jr. is awfully tasty. Well, I just, I, read, I, I, I just, I, I, just a couple quick points. One, I brought up the Carl's Jr. being right wing thing because you may get to name drop Nancy Reagan. I was driven around Phoenix uh, last summer by an intern at the Goldwater Institute who's who was uh, an heir to the Carl's Jr. dynasty. Oh, a Karcher. He would know then, yeah. Yeah, and he seemed like he was he was pretty conservative. <laughs> yeah, and, they are. Yeah, and second, uh, um, if you've never been to Culver's, which is my favorite fast food restaurant in America, um, where is they that? Do, it's throughout the Midwest, and they're they're moving east, which I'm very excited about. The problem is 
the food is great. The cheese curds, patty melts, butter burgers. Um, they go the other way too. And um, the only problem is is that somehow they have mastered the space-time continuum and all of their staff are hired from the 1950s. <laughs> and it's these milk-fed far- white farm girls from the 1950s and almost everyone I've been in. And they their manners are impeccable and – it, you almost expect like the Lawrence Welk bubble machine to go off in the background every time you walk in. And I just don't know how that's going to play as they move east. Um, but you should definitely try Culver's. It's a Culver's. Culver's. I, uh, I read a stat last week, and now I can't remember where I read it, about this whole question of making fast food healthier in which either the CEO of McDonald's or the chief marketer of McDonald's said that over the last two years – they had spent 25% of their advertising dollars on healthy options and that healthy yeah. options after two years of this made up 6% of McDonald's sales. So they had actually made an affirmative mm-hmm. effort. And this is, I think McDonald's is the second or third largest advertiser um, in the United States, something like that. Um, so they made an enormously uh, expensive effort to market healthy food and it failed or appears, it appears to have failed. So, um, this whole notion that, you know, all you need to do is, you know, convince people that it's hip or now or fun or yummy to have a salad and just market it the way you would market a hamburger, uh, and you'll do fine has effectively been, been disproven. Well, you know, yeah. Well, I was going to say that the the, uh, the other research that McDonald's did, which I think was really interesting, was that the, what they discovered was because the, 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 the salads they used to sell were actually proper sized salads, and they found that uh, nobody was eating them, but everybody said they were eating them. So the number of people who said they ate McDonald's salads at McDonald's was something like three uh, x the number of salads they were actually selling. Um, so what the people were doing, obviously, was they were either lying to everyone, saying, I eat the salads at McDonald's, and then going in and just swallowing fries and shake and burger. Or they were more, more likely lying to themselves, and the salad was the bait to get you in the McDonald's, to, make <laughs> you, to get you to make the psychological decision to walk in. So you don't have to walk – walking into McDonald's is essentially a surrender to your, your – to your, your, your base, your base yeah, instincts. Well, the minute you walk in, you're saying, okay – I'm eating this now, and if you could, if you can delay that that absolute surrender to the moment you get to the counter, you you it, it's easier, right? Because all they really the, the hardest thing for them to do is get you in the door. So if they say no, no, we have salads, we have salads, we have salads, and you can say to yourself, I'm ordering a salad, I'm ordering a salad, all the way up to the what can McDonald's going to help you? And then you say, double quarter pounder with cheese, large fries, and shake. That. That 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 helps, right? So, but that that way they, they they exercise portion control on the salad, so they're not making all these salads that nobody's eating. See, it's so funny see because not to, not to bring this back to another topic, but it's funny because my understanding is that last night Mia Farrow said masterpiece <laughs> theater, masterpiece theater, <laughs> exactly. masterpiece theater, exactly. and ended up watching Sharknado. Exactly, ah, it's amazing. <laughs> um, now, speaking of uh, crazy marketing, last night at ten thirty. Uh, round about uh, the time that Ian Ziering was um, chainsawing his way out of a shark's stomach at the conclusion of Sharknado. Um, New York's own, uh, very own Sharknado, uh, former Governor Elliot Spitzer, arrived at City Hall 
with 27,000 signatures, 23,000 more than he needed to get himself on the ballot in his uh, late-breaking race uh, to be the New York City controller coming five years after his disgraced exit uh, as the state's governor following the revelation that he had uh, hired prostitutes and probably more importantly had sought to have banking officials not report large cash transactions uh, as they were required to do under the Patriot Act uh, in, in, in effect attempting to get bank, banking his bankers to you know, suborn federal law. Um, and he resigned in disgrace and now having watched uh, Anthony Weiner, the uh, disgrace tweeting uh, congressman, make a late entry, late entry into the mayor's race and uh, emerge as the leader of that race, um, Spitzer has decided to try his hand at it as well. Um, I have uh, very uh, powerful feelings about this, which I can get into, but I'd like to hear the thoughts of you two gentlemen <clears throat> on the reemergence of Elliot Spitzer. Uh, why don't you start, Rob, because my phone is ringing. i got to make it stop. Uh-oh. Well, I, I, <laughs> I, I don't – I mean I guess th- there's a certain number of people who understand a certain number of jobs in government, Right. So there's a certain number of people who are qualified to do those jobs, uh, like city controller, et cetera. And um, that, that's, that's kind of – I mean it, that's kind of what he's going for there. He's going for the nerd job that usually that's a functionary. That's the beginning of your career or it's a functionary job or something like that. And so it seems to me that he's got a high, high likelihood of winning, whether – whether it's right or not, I mean, I'm just making sort of a political analysis here. Whether it's right or not is a separate matter. But uh, uh, what, what I find sort of a, so astonishing is how how all how 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 quickly every how quickly we go through the kabuki theater of of your of your life. That uh, I went through the um, I went through the scandal phase, and then I went through the. I, I said the words that you say at that. After that, you, I stood up in front of the lectern, and then my wife looked sad. And then I went through the phase where I was quiet for ten seconds, and then I went through the phase where I was slowly back on CNN, and then I went through the phase where I was now uh, go back in public life. That it feels like he's not inventing this story; he's just following a script, right? I mean, it seems so strange that at no point, at no point. Did he actually did, – did anything real ever happen? I mean you wrote, John, recently, I think this week, that your explanation for all of this is that he's, he's nuts. Right. Well, he Which is seems nuts. likely. I mean but you know, he's nuts and he's crazy like a, like a fox. I mean in this sense, which is if you want the job of New York City controller, which, which is not a very good job. But if you are you know, a, a major public figure like Elliot Spitzer, you can make it into anybody – into any job you really want to. Just by you know holding press conferences and being a loudmouth and getting yourself interviewed about things, and then basically using it simply to run for another office afterwards. Um, I'm struck by uh, my view is there's no qualifications for holding office in the United States practically, so it is entirely up to the voters to decide whether they want to employ a unbalanced and unstable person whose lack of balance and instability were an obvious matter of 
you know, public knowledge five years ago, if they want to decide that's fine with them, either because they're in a forgiving mood or because they, we now live in a culture in which you're not supposed to judge anybody or, or, or whatever. But the central point is that nobody should be under any illusions about what's going on here, that uh, somebody who committed both uh, misdemeanors and uh, what appear to be felonies um, and had to you know, run away from an office that he had won 19 months earlier with nearly 70% of the vote is somebody they're going to hire again for, a, for, for this job. And there is no indication that he is any different, that he's a different person, no. that, he, that he has – that there is anything to trust of that, that, that there has been a change in his life. He has conducted himself no differently except that he is not a public official. He went on television. He behaved obnoxiously as he always did. Yeah, he's definitely, <laughs> he acted yeah. holier than now the way he always did uh, with the exception of the fact that his wife didn't dump him. Uh, every and you know, and he's also worth hundreds of millions of dollars, so he can do whatever he wants to. He doesn't have to support himself. He doesn't have to, you know, he doesn't have to go out and get a job so that he can, you know, pay the bills. <clears throat> so there, there we are. Um, and fine, you know, I guess the main point now, which has now been proved by Mark Sanford's victory in in uh, South Carolina after his own uh, the, the revelation of his own affair. Uh, is that uh, at the very least, uh, this needs to be a bipartisan thing that you know Republicans cannot be held if the world is going in a direction in which uh, per- not only personal misbehavior but even professional misbehavior as a politician is no longer a, ba- a barrier to holding office, then it cannot be that only Republicans, you know. Republicans can't unilaterally disarm themselves by insisting that their people leave office while, you know, Democrats are totally fine with having their people stay. Now, I, I agree that we, we talked about that before with, with, with Sanford a while back, and I, I, I generally agree with that. What I, what I, part of what I find sort of depressing is that um, I see people like Wiener and uh, Spitzer and Bill Clinton – and a lot of the a lot of these guys that there there is something that it, it, historically it always seemed to me that this was more a problem for liberals and Democrats because the desire to be in politics is total among liberals. The politics and religion are yeah. overlapping things. It's all consuming, um, particularly when you get into the media age where you're on TV and you're a celebrity for being in politics. The idea of walking away from that limelight strikes the sort of strivers who fill the ranks of the Democratic Party, John Kerry, all those guys. It, 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 the idea it, it's like walking from the sun, the warmth and the sunshine to a, to a no man's land, and they can't handle the cold. What I've always liked more about conservative politicians is, even though <laughs> they're much dumber about politics, um, is that. They generally come in after doing something else in their life, and they get so disgusted with about how badly the country is run that they sort of like Cincinnati. They lay down the plow, they leave their businesses, and they give it a whirl at trying to f- clean things up in Washington. And, and generally, it shows that they're not very good politicians, but they're kind of decent people. And now, what we're sort right. of seeing is this sort of phenomenon where, on the Democratic and the Republican side, there are people who, from the day they're born, and I see these interns 
come into Washington so often now, and they are just simply Elliot Spitzer larvae, right? And um, and you <laughs> know that they're going to you know they're going to go through the tadpole stage, but you can just tell that they all want to be, um, you know, they want to be be these kinds of driven right. people, and um, and it. It's sort of a race to the bottom problem is that now we have our own, you know, David Vitter types. We have these people who just have to be in the limelight too, but on the Republican side of things. And I just wish we lived in a more decent society where, you know, who was it? Was it John Profumo who, after the scandal in, in Britain, you know, he went and did good works for the rest of his life to atone for his public humiliation and sin. These guys, it's like they have to, it's like an old game of tag where they go back and touch base for five minutes. And then they're allowed to play again. I think it's not just yeah. that. The, the Profumo example is also the notion that Profumo himself felt that he had learned about himself that he was diseased. That his pursuit of power, the way he pursued it and the arrogance with which he held it was something that was bad for him, that had, that had harmed his soul. And that he wasn't just doing penance. He, he led a happier and better and more fulfilled life after right. his humiliation than before. That well, seems that, to be that, of no well, interest lost, whatsoever. Well, but we've lost that. To Spitzer we, we, and Wiener. We, we, we've None. lost the whole – we've lost the ability to even make that argument. I mean we don't even say that anymore. We talk about people in politics, people who are amassing power, bureaucratic power, and we say they're in public service. We actually with this kind of horrible simpering, overweening kind of all that horrible weasel wordy stuff, we, you're in public I I I'm in public service. And and we actually say that now. We we've, we've turned all of these horrible jobs that you they, they used to be it used to be slightly distasteful. Like you were kind of a crook. If you were a congressman, you were probably a crook. And if you were a governor, you were also probably the chief crook in the state. I'm not saying that was a good thing, but no one looked at you like you were a good guy. You were probably on the, on the take. But now we, 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 that's like considered absolutely out of bounds. You, the only reason you'd be in government now officially, according to the culture, is to make life better for everyone. Which is total BS, except that we've now accepted this nonsense so that people like Spitzer in their, in their, or their weird kind of – their vanity, their strange like autoerotic, uh, I don't know, uh, um, need to be in power, they've managed to convince themselves they're doing it for you. And it's, it's, it's creepy. It's horrible. It's, yeah, it's yeah. the same thing as like celebrities who, who while they, they surround themselves with their retinue, they still maintain that they're like – no, no, no. I really, I, I'm doing this because I want to spread, you know, the uh, my uh, my message about autism or whatever it is that they're doing. It's horrible. <laughs> well, it's funny. Um, I was on this panel yesterday at AEI where I hang my hat and um, or one of my hats, and I was the question, you know, for the panel was whether or not big business is the enemy of free enterprise, whatever. And it was an interesting thing. But uh, Tim Carney, my friend Tim Carney, was with the Examiner. He had he made this great point. He says. You know, there's this tendency when successful people um, hit it big and they start like giving money to charity. Um, it's always written about how they're giving back, right? And so he says, you know, look at this guy who invented the cronut, right? And he got really rich, and now finally, now that he's succeeded in inventing the cronut and he's gotten really rich, he's going to give back to society. And Tim's point is, what the hell? He gave us the cronut. 
We've got the cronut, you know. <laughs> like, like, why? Why do we assume people are willingly dropping, giving their hard-earned money because they think the cronut has value to them, like the Carl's Jr. burger? Why? Wh- where does it say that the guy who invented the cronut is doing something bad and has to atone for it? And meanwhile, these dipwads like Wiener right. and Spitzer, they get all of their psychic gratification from being celebrities. And bullies. I mean, that's who they are. Is there are celebrities and bullies, and who get to use government for their personal aggrandizement, and yet somehow they're cast by the press as as dedicated public servants. I mean, I, mark me down as the cronut guy. I mean, I like Absolutely. you know. I, I, right. you know? <laughs> but I mean, the no, guy who invented the cronut also invented the guy who invented the cronut invented a product that now he's got to hire people to sell and hire people to make. You know, I mean, they're gonna. I mean, they have a push cart somewhere, and uh, you know, around town with selling Krona. I mean, that, like, like that, that. That I mean, I, uh, it, for a lot of real reasons, the Cronut is a lot more valuable to anybody and to everyone than anything Elliot Spitzer is gonna do or, is, or has done or is about to do. I mean, there's no other argument for it. I mean, but it's more, it's more interesting than that because the story of Elliot Spitzer is a story of somebody who attained power and then destroyed himself in the course of attaining power, that he had pursued in in the most aggressive possible way a path to the eventual presidency that he, he, but for his own weaknesses and through compulsions, made impossible. So I think the story, this is where Profumo comes in. Elliot Spitzer is doing himself harm and injury. He did himself harm and injury. He became governor. He insulted everybody in the state, having spent eight years as attorney general of New York, threatening and bullying people on Wall Street. He simply moved to Albany and started doing the same thing when, in fact, if he had harnessed his power more intelligently, he could have been a very effective governor and could have had a springboard to a limitless future as the first Jewish president. He could not do so because he does not have it in him and because there's something in him that wanted to destroy himself. It is not in his best emotional interest to get back in politics. Probably quite the opposite. This is very bad for him. And it would have been understood in a previous era as being something bad for the person to whom this sort of thing happens. If you behave badly for no reason, not because you want to get rich, right? So you want to get rich, you take a bribe. That's a very, you know, you take bribes because you want money. If you're somebody who doesn't need money, doesn't need, doesn't need, doesn't need that, and you get into government and, you're, and you destroy yourself for no reason, obviously something, karma or yourself or your soul or some part of you is trying to tell you something. And he is not listening. And, and Anthony Weiner is not listening either. And they have these, clearly they have these wives who are um, enablers and abettors. Uh, and why they stay right. with them, this is beyond us to understand. But they're, but they're Silda, Wall Spitzer is, yeah. five years later, having become the subject of a television show. You know, the show The Good Wife is essentially about Elliot Spitzer and Silda Spitzer. Um, and she's still there with him. Uh, she, according to his former best friend, Gus Con- um, uh, uh, Lloyd Constantine, um, the year before, you know, he had to resign disgrace, Lloyd went, who's somebody I know, went out to lunch with, with Silda Spitzer and she said, who is this guy speaking of her husband? 
that something bad had been going on and happening to him internally. And uh, like I say, his behavior over the last three or four days as he has come out of, you know, has come out of hiding into this race indicates that he is the same guy that she said, who is this guy? He's obnoxious. He's combative. Yeah. He's unpleasant. He, you know, he can't keep himself from insulting the person who's running for the office against him, who said one or two mild things against him. He's just awful. But, but and I, the awfulness is poisoning his own soul. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I have, there's so many things I have to do today and tomorrow and the rest of the week. John, you'll forgive me if I don't spend any time worrying about his soul. But, <laughs> but I'm just, I'm just, I'm just uh, my, my schedule's a bear, if you don't mind. Um, but I, but no, something but you said earlier, wait, 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 something you said earlier that I thought was really interesting, which is that this is a guy, I mean, and I don't want to turn this into like, uh, you know, some other uh, rant here, but, there is something weird and – I mean there, there are sort of three – I think three really sort of bad things happening now, right? One sort of we already talked about is that this idea that um, when, when, you, when, you, uh, when you do something you're ashamed of, the, you, 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 you read a script, uh, a canned script, in a, basically in a monotone and you, and you wait an appropriate amount of time and then you reemerge because that's just all you need to do. You just pay lip service at Kabuki Theater. The second thing is that – uh, there's nothing um, at all um, uh, uh, a public service about these jobs. They, they are, in fact, just power grabs. And we, as a culture, have forgotten that, I think, from the 60s or 70s or from the ascent of the sort of liberal, uh, progressive idea of government. We no longer – we've given up the idea that we used to have. You know, you watched movies in the 30s and 40s. Uh, the, the popular culture used to be everybody in government was fat and corrupt. Right, and that was supposed to be that was normal. And every reporter in in America was a cynical, wisecracking guy who knew everybody was a liar. And that <laughs> that and you, now it's like every reporter is a crusading journalist, and every person in government is either Ned Beatty or Charles Durning, a senator, you know, in the take of the oil companies, or a crusade. You know, it's, it's all that public service now, which is a complete lie. And the third thing, which I think is really important, is that Elliot Spitzer's a rich kid, so he didn't have to get a job. He's part of this elite cast that, of course, he has to go into sort of kabuki theater land for a while and atone for nine, 18 months, 24 months and do something else for a while and then come right back because these are the jobs that rich kids have who lord it over us and lord over the – and take these jobs and are, eventually he will be senator from New York. Why not? He doesn't have to pay a price for it. Well, who's he going to run against? Another rich kid? There is something wrong. About yeah. our society that we perpetuate this aristocracy, and, and it's let, a and and, we, and and I don't know quite how to stop it. Well, let's also just just get it out there for this, because this is you know it's a part of this is that I understand this part problem is going on in other places in America, but in New York it's worse. <laughs> New York City is a problem. I mean, I I love New York City dearly. I grew up there. I miss it. I still consider myself a New Yorker. But you know, there's something about New Yorkers who just think it's sort of funny to uh, have larger than life personalities in their politics. It's sort of like New Orleans has the same thing, and they 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 kind of brag about this kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, as much grief as the New York Post loves to give, you know, Wiener and Spitzer, they are elated <laughs> that they're in yeah. the race, you know. And that's, that's part of the tabloid culture, and the problem no, is it, it, it infects the rest of the country. 
Jefferson well, was right about cities. Well, I really do have to say, though, that New York has nothing on Illinois. I mean, Illinois is a state in which something like half of the, you know, of the statewide officials over the last 20 years elected statewide have gone to jail. So yeah, but that's, that's honest corruption. Yeah, I, I, find, for some reason I find that better. Yeah, I find that more normal. Yeah. Well, well 50, you know, 50% of the living former Illinois governors are in jail, which is just awesome. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, so New York is uh, New York is diseased. Elliot Spitzer is diseased. You get a disease if you go to Carl's Jr. and eat a burger the size of a small house. Uh, there's a lot of disease going on. So the question that comes up next is, uh, here we are five years into the Obama administration uh, with a president who – uh, who either does not care about foreign policy or who believes that the American foreign policy should be to have as little foreign policy as possible because when we have a lot of foreign policy, bad things happen that we don't <laughs> want to have happen. And uh, we are watching one of the, you know, arguably one of the 10 most important countries in the world go in Egypt, go through this bizarre trend, you know, go through this bizarre <laughs> transition. Wait, I thought you were talking about America. <laughs> uh, no, we're one of the six most important countries oh, well, in the world. But okay. you know, <clears throat> you know, education is much, much better in Iceland uh, than here. But anyway, um, uh, so there is Egypt, uh, eighty-eight million people, the most important country in the Arab world, uh, politically, culturally, socially, um, uh, going through this extraordinarily complicated and peculiar uh, political, social, ideological, religious moment. And um, we have nothing to say about it. Nothing. We don't have a policy. We didn't have a policy before. We don't have a policy now. Fine. So we can sit so, back and so, watch. so Obama's consistent. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. This is not. I don't want to take. I don't want consistency. I don't want to take. Uh, I, I certainly don't want to to take the uh, be the devil's advocate, as it were. Um, but what should his policy be? It it it, it feels to me like. I don't know what it should be. It's it's a mess. Well, what I can tell you what it shouldn't have been. What it shouldn't have been for the last year and a half was uh, to pretend that uh, we could do business with the Muslim Brotherhood, which is what the official policy of the United States was. A lot of meetings, a lot of sucking up, a lot of um, a lot of talking as though the Muslim Brotherhood, which was attempting to choke off uh, what little democratic progress had been made um, and destroy it through, you know, creation of, um, of uh, rule by decree by Mohammed Morsi, who after all only won 50% of the vote. Um, and we just stood by and acted like that was just totally wonderful. So now the Muslim Brotherhood hates us because we didn't do anything to stop its being ousted and the uh, Democrats and others hate us because we stood by while the Muslim Brotherhood depray, you know, ruined their, their nascent democracy. So uh, whatever but we, we should have done, we, should, yeah. we did do it well before. But what if we had no – I mean, I, mean my, I guess my premise is that we have no choice but to stand by. We, standing by is really all we got. Well, no. I'm, when I say policy, I don't necessarily mean what we need to be as activists and you know and and dominating everything. I mean that you would hope that people with experience, that people with knowledge, the people who had been doing this for years, would actually say, "Okay, 
here's, here's the circumstance. We need to have this. We need to do that. These are the policies we need to uphold. We have a law that says we need to cut off aid in the case of a coup. Uh, how do we deal with that? W- what do we do under these circumstances? How do we do with this? And from what we can tell, we're not doing anything. I'm not talking about that we should be making speeches or that Obama should be making speeches or John Kerry, God help me, should be making speeches. John Kerry should stay on his yacht as far as I'm concerned as long as he possibly can as opposed to getting off his yacht. But, but not, doing, not doing anything is not, a pol- is, not, is not acceptable and that is Obama's preferred policy is to do nothing and we can't do nothing. I mean this is a very important relationship. Don't forget – we have given Egypt in aid since the uh, Camp David Accords $75 billion in aid, $75 billion as a payoff for right. Egypt not to attack Israel. I mean, you know, right now $75 billion given the size of the, the federal deficit and the, and the amount of money that we spend on, oh, yeah. on uh, you know, it doesn't sound like that much money, but it's more money than we've ever given to any other country in the history of the world, including Israel. So um, this is a very strange circumstance to have so little impact and influence over what's going on there given how much money we've invested in Egypt. Yeah, but I mean I guess what I'm saying is that w- – there are sometimes only, the only the only option sometimes is to do nothing. But you know, paraly- I, doing nothing I, is not the same as paralysis. Doing nothing can be a policy. They're paralyzed. They are not. They are not sitting back and waiting to see what happens. They are paralyzed with indecision. Well, that's I mean, a but, different. But I have to admit, it's a really impressive task to get both the democrat the democratic liberals and. The Muslim Brotherhood to both hate you. I mean that that takes some skill, <laughs> and yeah. the and that's I, mean, I think Rob. That, I mean that's sort of par, part of the problem, right? Is is that you know if the time to talk about fire safety precautions isn't necessarily best after the whole house burns down, right? And so the, they've gotten themselves into such an unbelievable mess that you may be right. There may be nothing that they can do, but they're not doing nothing because. You know, no, I agree. Chose to do yeah. nothing, you know, and they, they, they're doing nothing because they, they they screwed themselves on all of this. Well, and I, yes. think, I think a big part of it has, you know, part of it is, you know, I think obviously deliberate. Part of it is Obama has always wanted to put foreign policy on the back burner. Part of it, you know, I, I, you know, there are a lot of people, a lot of our friends uh, on the right who have very grandiose theories about how he wants to destroy America and all of that. I don't buy that stuff, but I do think. That he has, as a general proposition, absent other contexts, absent other qualifiers, as a general proposition, his view of American foreign policy for the last 60 years has been a net negative. He thinks America has been more wrong than right. He thinks America screws things up more often than it helps. Um, this is a guy who was so married to this sort of Hyde Park, uh, you know, Columbia vision of what his presidency would mean and and the the you know because he talked to all these guys in the faculty lounge about the role of, of race and all of that post colonial jibber jabber um, he actually believed that simply being named Barack Obama and being black was going to send this signal around the yeah, world right and it, and so he was just completely unready for the job and he falls back on his natural instincts which is to vote present 
and to work on the assumption that America getting involved is a bad thing. And, that, and this is the kind of mess you find yourself in when you don't have the kind of confidence to actually stake out a position and, and, and follow it through. No, I, no I, I hear that. And I also feel like he is one of those guys who believes that whatever happens later, uh, you, you talk your way out of it because you're smart and because actually it is a communications problem. And, and he, you know, he gave a great speech in Cairo years ago uh, in which he blamed America. And that's, that, that solved a lot of problems and soothed a lot of tensions. And now he's got more tensions and you wait and see what happens. And then whatever, whoever takes over in, 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 in Egypt, he'll be able to talk his way out of it. Yeah, that's probably what he thinks. Um, I, I guess what I, what I mean is that, that – that if, 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 if there's going to be instability in the Middle East for the next 15 or 20 years probably. That may or may not be in our interest. It's hard to know. I don't have a crystal ball. But I'm not sure we have any more – I'm not sure we have any leverage there one way or the other. Well, if we don't have any leverage, it, it, it is in, in part because we made the decision five years ago to um, remove our leverage – Emotionally, practically, uh, the president went to Cairo and said, I'm not going to do what everybody did before me. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what America may have done to you people. Uh, you know, uh, this is a new beginning. It's a new start. Whatever happens, happens. Um, and, you know, that was a message as much to the tyrants as it was to the Democrats. And, and I think, again, I'm not saying that what, what needs to happen is for Barack Obama to announce what should happen to Egypt and make speeches every day and have a vigil. Um, it would have been enough if we had had any uh, foreshadowing that uh, 7 million people were going to go into the streets, right. which we didn't. I mean, that alone, you know, we have, a, we have, we have 500 uh, consular and embassy employees in Egypt, 500 full-time American employees, none of whom knew that the government was about to be overthrown. And the, and the one thing we know about this administration is they are often unaware of the need for consular security. <laughs> there, is, um, a, that's, there is a startling excerpt from a, uh, from a new book uh, in the August edition of Vanity Fair about what was going on in Benghazi, uh, which I commend to you in which – uh, it, it is now pretty clear that uh, uh, everybody uh, who worked on consular security in Libya and in Benghazi knew perfectly well that Chris Stevens was the target of this attack and that they had told the FBI that this was the case three mm -hmm. days after the attack, which was two days before Susan Rice's you know, five-show hit in which she said that this was the result of the video, um, a spontaneous outpouring as a result of the video. So we now have even more information to suggest either, you know, an unbelievable level of, 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 of incompetence in the way the information was being processed and handled or something more malign. Um, and, uh, and I mean, that, that story, you know, which has faded a little bit over the last couple of months, I think is going to start roaring back potentially, um, if the guys who worked on this book really come out front and center and explain, you know, what happened. Um, meanwhile, as we speak uh, on, on Friday morning, the 12th, um, uh, Edward Snowden, um, the former NSA and Booz Hamilton, Booz Allen Hamilton employee who uh, created what may be the largest security breach in American history with the revelation of 
of the prison programs and various other things, uh, uh, held uh, called human rights groups to his side in the uh, Moscow International Arrivals Terminal um, to uh, make a statement and give a speech and demand and yell at the United States and demand asylum. Uh, in his statement, he said, only a month ago, I was living in paradise with my stripper pole girlfriend. Well, he didn't say stripper <laughs> pole girlfriend, but I was living in paradise, and now I'm a man on the run because I just did the most wonderful thing, and no, and my country hates me. So, um, you know, the famous, the famous definition of, of, of the Yiddish word chutzpah is the person who kills his parents and then throws himself on the mercy of the right. court because he's an orphan. Snowden is now reaching chutzpah-like Le, you know, levels of chutzpah dick uh, that put that story in the shade. Self-pity about how, oh, he was leading such a wonderful life in paradise and now he's on the run. <laughs> right. Well, Venezuela's uh, kind of nice. Uh, so I hear. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's lovely there. And, you know, now that Hugo Chavez is gone, maybe they will change the clocks back so that it's not half an hour earlier or later than it is everywhere else in the, in the world. Because, right. you know, Chavez I, did that. Can I just offer one, my biggest sort of peeve fascination with this whole story? I mean, I agree with you entirely about Snowden, you know. Um, but uh, what I love, right? So here you have Putin, who's really the closest we've come on the world stage to a true throwback kind of fascist dictator, right? The old style... Uh, cult of personality, throws his political point, uh, opponents in prison, crushes human rights, crushes his opponents, and yet he claims he can't send anyone in to the the, the international passenger exchange at the Moscow airport. <laughs> really? Really? You can't send someone into uh, the Sparrow TSA. and pull them out of there? Yeah, TSA is so rough. They're just like... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I went in there with a bottle of water, and they. You know. <laughs> and it's not, you know, it's not like Snow's hiding in a church where, like, there is this internationally recognized romance and nostalgia about the concept of sanctuary. No, no. until until he asserted this, it never occurred to anybody that he couldn't get this guy out of there. You know, no, of he's, he's, he's at the Sparrow. <laughs> I mean, no, he's, at, he's at the Cinnabon. <laughs> he's getting a cronut. Stop him! <laughs> he's at the air. The, the what is it? The spa? The air spa? He's going to get a back rub. I just think what what is what is remarkable is that you can decide that what he has revealed is an important thing for people to know, and you know that this is a vital information about how our government has gone too far. But we do get back to the simple point that he is a twenty nine year old. Uh, who assumed upon himself solely and then with the aid of radical journalists and this wildly either irresponsible or malign organization arrogated to himself the right to uh, dictate what was and what was not a a highly classified secret in, you know, uh, against oaths that he took and documents that he signed and rules that he promised to abide by. And I understand and and then decides that he's going to take it on the lamb. So if he's really a martyr to this, he could have stayed, faced the music, and stood in court and made the case that he is now making worldwide about how, you know, America is a fascist country and he wouldn't have had a fair trial. Or... 
but that's not what he did. He's just looking for the best, you know, he's looking for the best shot for himself. Yeah, and, and look, I, mean, I find his actual, because you know, one of my pet intellectual fascinations is the role of basically one worldism or cosmopolitanism, you know, the whole parliament of man thing. And if you read his interview with the guardian and there was another one, um, he basically says that the const- that our constitutional rights are borderless and that it is outrageous to violate the privacy of a Pakistani or a Frenchman or a German by the NSA as it is mm-hmm. to do it with an American. And that is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, right? I mean, that is, I mean, you were basically saying America can't exist um, because if we have to respect the constitutional rights of everybody around the world, then we're not a country anymore. And, um, but these but guys it, actually believe it. And there's an amazing, and I think part of it is because of the internet culture. There's this amazing tendency among sort of young web, you know, netizens to, Think in these sort of cosmopolitan globalist terms as if it is outrageous for America, to, the American government, to treat American citizens right. one way right. and non American citizens another way. Well, it's not so outrageous. Anthony Kennedy, the, you know, one of the, you know, the most important justice on the Supreme Court, effectively said this in overturning, you know, the, the system of military tribunals at, at Guantanamo Bay. I mean, he said that this, is, this tra- traduces international law. Um, and that you know, international law says that we must obey X, Y, and Z, as opposed w- without making reference to U.S. law. Again, it was not a. And ordinarily, one does not believe that U.S. law, constitutional you know case law said that it was constitutional to have to have uh, to have this kind of system. And he said no, and his examples he used were were extra were outside the United States. Yeah. So so this is a this is this is a more common idea. Um, it's a very dangerous one. I agree with you. This is all gets to the notion of sovereignty and what it means to you know you don't just get freedoms. The other thing which is important that everybody forgets because everybody is so nascently libertarian, uh, freedoms and responsibilities of citizenry go hand in hand. Um, you know, you're free because God made you free and all of that. But, uh, but a free society requires not only an educated citizenry but a self-policing citizenry, which means that the citizenry will not go off and hand, out and hand off secrets and expect to be defended and protected against his own, their own illegal actions. Yeah, right. no, no, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, and, and the, the, I mean, one of the things, because I'm doing some reading on this these days, one of the things that's sort of fascinating to keep in mind is that the whole concept of the nation state <laughs> is much more recent and less firmly fixed in the global imagination than a lot of people want to you know, admit. And um, it could, there are definitely these centrifugal forces in the world right now that are pushing people to give up concepts of nation states. And, um, um, and I think Snowden and these guys are basically the, you know, the avant-garde of the global proletariat for this kind of movement. And I think it's just going to get a lot stronger as, as the years go by. Absolutely. Now, speaking of the of of, uh, of borderless uh, global industries and businesses and <laughs> and life, we find ourselves um, uh, back to pop culture. Uh, increasingly, the line out of Hollywood is that no good movies can ever be made again because 
the DVD business cratered, which was providing Hollywood with a steady stream of money. And now the only place to get that money is in China and India. And the only American movies that people in China and India want to see are superhero movies and that have lots of action and fantasy sequences. Mm -hmm. And so you'll never get a nice, good $40 million movie made uh, about adults and their feelings and and, and when Harry met Sally and now you couldn't get it made for the movies. And isn't this terrible and it's so sad. And meanwhile, they're spending too much money on the movies they are making and then the movies fail and the business is going to crater and blah, 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 blah. So... Here's the latest object of this is is the Lone Ranger released last week, uh, which uh, you know ordinarily it made fifty million dollars at the box office. That would seem good. Apparently, it's a disastrous, nightmarish calamity from which the world will never recover. Um, and people alternately are gleeful and uh, and uh, about the failure because they love to see a rich, you know rich guys brought low, and simultaneously they are talking about it as though this is the end of cinema as we know it. I actually liked The Lone Ranger very much, much to my surprise. I really enjoyed it. I recommend it to people if you could just get, get over the anti-capitalist message. Um, but otherwise, it's immensely entertaining and beautiful to look at and a lot of fun. But even so, um, why are we supposed to care about how it used to be that Hollywood could make $3 billion off DVDs and now they can't make that kind of money anymore? Well, they shouldn't. I mean, why should anybody care uh, that, you know, boo-hoo, uh, people in Hollywood aren't getting rich anymore? I mean, look, it was a giant fat revenue stream and it's gone down because of unlimited bandwidth and unlimited store width and all sorts of things. But look, all the movies you described, the, the ones you want, the adult movies, there's no reason they should have cost $40 million in the first place. They can cost $8 million and everybody can make a tidy living and appear on HBO. And that's probably or, – or, or some other channel. That's probably what will happen. Um, you know, I'm talking about Sharknado that's on the Sci-Fi channel, which until six months ago you could barely find. Um, so th- this is good. I mean, look, I didn't see Lone Ranger either. But the reason it failed, um, I think, or partly failed, I mean, it looked it's a $200 million picture. And it got, it got put on ice about, you know, uh, six months before it, 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 they, they rolled film because they couldn't get the, they couldn't get the budget down to $200 million. And they got it down to $200 million, but when they started doing it, and it just ballooned out because it gets a train that explodes and all this other stuff happens in there. The problem with that picture is um, if you look at the, 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 the uh, one sheet and you look at all of the, the, the marketing, it doesn't look very funny. It doesn't look very appealing. It doesn't look, it doesn't look light the way Pirates of the Caribbean look light, and they're trying to sell it as the next Pirates of the Caribbean. And Johnny Depp looks scary instead of fun. And it He's just was fun. All- it's just but too bad they just they, they mishandled it because it, it is a yeah. lot of fun. It's very funny. Depp is very funny. And the last 20 minutes, which are all set to the William Tell Overture, the famous uh, score, backgrounding score to the Lone Ranger radio and TV show, is just fantastic. Anyway, it's, Rob, it's, it's, I just want you to know, Rob. It's marketing malpractice. Yeah, you sound like you're, uh, you're auto-tuned. It's really exciting. You sound like Cher singing that song, If You Believe. But, uh, <laughs> and, you know, and I really, I'm really excited for you because, you know, we learned recently that uh, Cher put Tom Cruise in her top five of men that she uh, slept with, So, um, which really makes you wonder about the other four. But, Jonah, uh, what's your take on the uh, too expensive movie crisis? Yeah, well, I, I, I think the, the uh, foreign markets holding Hollywood hostage story is kind of an old one. I think one of the first pieces I ever wrote for National Review 
was looking at that through the lens of uh, Baywatch's popularity and the Godzilla movie. Um, and, uh, you know, now it's gotten even worse where China is basically dictating the content of a lot of movies. I think it's all legitimate. But you said this thing about the about how you couldn't have a nice movie like Harry Met Sally where two people are just talking about their feelings and whatnot. I don't know. I am so... I'm so married now to the, the the revolution in serial television shows, which we've talked about a lot on this, that I don't miss that in movies nearly as much as I would have thought I would have, you know, because I think the 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 ball has been picked up drama wise by, you know, shows like Breaking Bad and right. all the rest yeah. that I just don't I don't. It's not like all of a sudden I feel like that kind of thing is missing in my life. I feel like I'm actually getting it better than I did from movies in the first place. Right. And I think that's that's ultimately – I think that is ultimately the story, which is that the line that I'm using, which is largely from the producer Linda Opst's new book, Sleepless in Hollywood. Um, She produced Nora Ephron's movies and she complains that she couldn't get them made today. That she and the other people in the book who are complaining in the movie industry, one of the things they are really complaining about is that movies are no longer the central, cool, popular art form. That television has displaced them, that, that this was the threat of television from the beginning, but it never really, boy, it never really got to fruition until around 2000. And I don't think it's ever going to go back. And they don't like it because they're in the, right. they're, they're, they're in the old industry and they're discomfited by this. And it's actually a lot harder because they have to make 13 hours of television as opposed right. to an hour and a half long movie. But that's the way it is. And the complaint is really about the death of cinema as the central popular art form and its displacement by television. And if you better for people like me, in fact, um, Linda Opes, who's you know, a nice person, but she's a producer. I don't I mean I'm doing a, a, a thing for FX starting in September. What I need Linda Oaks for, I need her to making a feature film, but I don't need her to make a twelve episode uh, series for FX. TV's a writer's right? I'm a writer, so I'm happy that the, the, those movies aren't getting made. The, all producers did steal money uh, and, and boss me around and uh, and make a lot of changes and demand a lot of changes that I disagree with. Now I'm driver's seat. It's great. Okay, well, I think this now. <laughs> I'm not sure what Rob said there, but uh, uh, oh, I'm sure I'm it was brilliant. Um, and I think what he basically was saying, if I could just summarize, is he doesn't need Linda Obst coming into his business and mucking around and taking all the money out of it. That was and, exactly. I, and I am, and I am with him on that. Now, it, we must come to an end because a we're running out of steam. I have to write a column. Jonah has to read about the nation state. Rob has to uh, <laughs> Rob, Rob has to make a show for FX, um, and uh, it is hot and it's the middle of July, and everybody should be doing something other than listening to this podcast. So we come to an end of another glop culture. Uh, don't eat a Carl's. Don't eat too big a Carl's Jr. hamburger before you go to Carl's Jr. Go to whatever that place was that Jonah mentioned that I never heard of and Rob never heard of, where the Culvers, women, Culvers, where you go back into the 1950s, <coughs> see the Lone Ranger because it's actually pretty good. Watch Sullivan and Son on TBS. Jonah probably has some appearance at some college in Michigan, so he can go eat at Culvers. I will be actually at the Western Conservative Summit on Saturday, July 27th. 
Wow, the Western Conservative Summit. That's right. Just leave it there. I Don't, love it. No editorializing. I'm Great not. to see you guys. Talk to you soon. Bye <laughs> bye. Bye. <laughs> Join the conversation.